0: The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's so much to say about it, not just the historic fact, but also the lessons that we can learn from it. And So this morning, let's turn our attention to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Arabic, "Raboni," which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have yet to ascend to my Father." But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples she had seen the Lord and that that He had said these things to her. On Tuesday, February 15th, 1921, There was a historic surgery that took place in New York City. Surgeon did a surgery that no one would have imagined, and yet it was successful. The patient had been diagnosed with abdominal pains, and the diagnosis was plain. It was an acute appendicitis, an inflamed appendix, and the protocol indicated that he needed to do an appendectomy. Now, he had performed over 4,000 appendectomies, over 37 years of practice. This was a routine surgery, except for two things. First of all, the doctor, Dr. Evan Kane, did not believe in general anesthetic. In fact, he thought it was more dangerous than local anesthesia. So he believed that this kind of procedure could be done with a local Now, there were many in the medical profession there in New York City that agreed with him in theory, but they had never seen it done. And so while they said, yeah, we think it could happen, they didn't volunteer. And so Cain did look around for a number of years for someone to volunteer, but nobody stepped forward. So finally on this particular day, he did find a patient. Patient was prepared. He was wheeled into surgery. The local anesthetic was applied. He did as he did thousands of times. He began to take the scalpel and begin to cut through the eight layers of of, uh, skin. He made a very narrow incision. He dissected everything that needed to be dissected, and he came to the appendix. And in less than an hour, he had removed it and he had stitched up the wound. During all of this, the patient only complained of very minor pain, kind of a pinch, he said. "Kane's theory was proven. You don't need to put someone asleep in order to do that kind of surgery. Thanks to the willing volunteer, Dr. Kane's theory became practice, and it's even used today. But as I said, there were two things that were unusual about the surgery. Not only was it done with local anesthetic, the other thing that was unusual was the patient. To prove his point, Dr. Evan Kane operated on himself. Now think of that. The doctor became a patient so that people would begin to trust their doctor. Now when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't that exactly the same thing? God became a man so that we might trust him. Not only did Jesus come out of a womb so that we'd trust him, he came out of a tomb so that we would trust him. Six weeks ago in Japan, there was a major earthquake, as you all know. And as I watched the news coverage, I, I thought to myself, you know, they're making it sound as though they've never had an earthquake before in Japan. But of course they had. 1923, there was an earthquake that hit right smack dab in the middle of Tokyo. Over 140,000 people died as a result. They thought that some buildings that they had constructed were impregnable, but yet they were flattened by the tremor. Now, it's interesting to me that three years before that earthquake, the government of Japan had contracted with an American architect to build a hotel, the Imperial Hotel in downtown Tokyo. The architect's name was Frank Lloyd Wright. And When Wright got to Tokyo, he began to do the soil surveys and he was appalled. As they drilled down into the soils, he found that there were only eight feet of soil, no rock, just some soil and sand. And under those eight feet were six feet of mud that was always moving. Now, a lesser architect might have concluded that there's no way to build a a major hotel on that site, but not Frank Lloyd Wright. He decided he would build it in a certain way, a way he had never built another building before. He determined to make it like a boat, a ship. Instead of trying to stand against tremors, he decided that this building would, would move with the flow of the ground 15 stories high, he made it like a ship. In fact, he also knew that one of the chief causes of death in an earthquake is fire because water lines are broken buildings. And so he commanded that his architectural group design a moat around this hotel, all the way around a large outdoor pool where people could swim. And so it was constructed, and two years later, on September 1st, 1923, the earthquake hit. News was slow in getting to the United States. One report in the L.A. Times said that the Imperial Hotel had been completely destroyed. One of the reporters called Frank Lloyd Wright and said, do you have any comment? He said, yeah, I have one comment. Go ahead and print whatever you want to, but make sure you're willing to retract it because an hour after the earthquake, Frank Lloyd Wright got a telephone call that the hotel was totally unscathed. Not only did it move with the earthquake, but also all of the water around the hotel was used, it was pumped out, and it was poured onto the walls of the hotel that it might not catch fire. A lesser architect who didn't understand the movement of soils who didn't understand the crisis that's caused by an earthquake might not have understood of all those things, but there's one thing we can say about Frank Lloyd Wright. When it came to foundations, he knew what a good foundation was. When you read John 20, you see that Jesus knows all about foundations too. Think of the magnitude of his death. Not only did a man die on Calvary but actually the Lord God Almighty died on Calvary. He was crucified on Friday, the Lord of glory. In his birth, he was proclaimed by angels to be a savior. In his baptism, he was proclaimed by God himself to be his son. In his transfiguration, he was proclaimed to be the infallible word of God. Listen to him, God said. But here at the cross... The king of kings is crucified, he's dead, and he's buried. And the universe foundation is shaken. Think of what the angels must have thought. They have no ability to think advanced thoughts. They can only see what happens. Can you imagine the thoughts of the angels as they saw the Lord of glory be put put to death? The very foundation of every disciple was shaken. Even a woman named Mary, and we don't know much about her. All we know about Mary are really two things. First of all, she hailed from a town called Magdala, from which we get her name, Mary Magdalene. We also know the first time she meets Jesus, Jesus casts seven demons out of her. And yet the Bible tells us That on the third day, while it's still dark, according to John's gospel, Mary goes to that tomb alone. Now, the other gospel writers say she's one of three women. But John says she goes alone while it's still dark, while it's still unsafe. She goes to anoint his body, and you must think to yourself, what did she imagine she'd do with the stone? How could she break that seal? And yet she goes. And John says when she gets there, she sees the stone's been rolled away. And immediately she takes off running for John and for Peter. And when they return, they find no body. They see the linen cloths, they're lying neatly folded. They see the head cloth, the face cloth that was on Jesus' head lying apart from those other cloths, it's folded neatly. They believe, at least John does. They believe he's not there. But then John says they did not yet know the Scriptures about what was to be in his resurrection, so they believe something. And yet John says amazingly that Mary comes back and she lingers there at the tomb. And at that tomb the foundation of her faith is established for here at this tomb the holy spirit the holy spirit demonstrates to her not only that her lord is alive but that her faith must be founded on a sure foundation someone has said in all of literature This is the greatest recognition scene. She comes to recognize her Lord. But ladies and gentlemen, she comes to recognize three other things that are lessons that all of us consistently need to be reminded of, not only on the Resurrection Sunday, but every day of our lives. So let's dig in. First of all, notice her pain. But Mary stood weeping outside of the tomb. Now, last week we talked about Passion Sunday. Most of us know it as Palm Sunday, but that's the second part of the trip that Jesus makes into Jerusalem. The first part is, focuses on his passion. He wept. And as we noted last week, the word for weeping there is in a verb tense, and it is a verb that's only used that one place in all of the Gospels. It means to break down and sob. Jesus sobs as he looks over the city. And yet here, it's Mary who's weeping. It's Mary who's shedding tears, and the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to miss the tears. In verse 11, John tells us that she's weeping. In verse 13, the angels mention that she's weeping. And in verse 15, Jesus mentions that She's weeping. In fact, the angels and Jesus ask her the same question Woman, why are you weeping? That's a great question. In the face of his crucifixion, Jesus doesn't weep. He doesn't weep in the garden, he doesn't weep in his arrest, he doesn't weep as he goes to the cross, he doesn't weep on the cross. And yet here, the first person to witness the resurrection of Jesus Christ weeps. Whereas Jesus never weeped for himself, Mary weeps for herself. And if you look at the etymology or the the background of the name Mary, the inherent meaning of the name Mary means a sea of bitterness. And here at the tomb, she is in a sea of bitterness, a sea that is made by her own tears. In the late 19th century, the first missionary to ever go to southern India, his name's Thomas Bach. His life and ministry had an impact way beyond India. And let me tell you how it all began. He tells the story that when he was in Copenhagen studying engineering, one day he was walking down the street, and there was a young boy on the street with leaflets, leaflets that described in a rudimentary way the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the young man says to Thomas Bach, who he doesn't know, Sir, I'd like to give you a leaflet. Uh, It's a leaflet that describes In it, a message that I want you to read. Bach said, a message indeed. Why do you bother people with your religion? I'm quite capable of taking care of myself. And he walked away. But he didn't get too far before he looked back at that young boy. That boy took the leaflets and left his post. And he went to a doorway right off the street where Bach could see him, and he began to weep. He didn't say anything. He didn't run after Bach. He simply stood there in that doorway and wept. And Bach said, Those tears prayed for a man who was starving spiritually, drove me to my knees. In repentance. You see, that boy wept like Jesus weeps. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he saw spiritual deprivation. He wept over Jerusalem because he saw what would happen to his own disciples who believed, that they would face their own deprivations. But when Mary weeps, she doesn't weep for anyone but herself. She weeps for herself, she weeps for her pain, she weeps for her future, she weeps for her own ignorance, and by weeping she misses a miracle. You know it stands to reason. Most of the tears and most of the sorrow we have is selfish. Mary stands at that tomb. All she can think about is herself, her loneliness, her desolation, her fear. It's natural, it's rational. And according to Scripture, it's deadly, because that kind of self-focus always gets in the way of our vision of God. As long as we focus on ourself, we'll never be able to be focused on him. Second, notice her posture. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. Now, that's a natural position to take. The stone is rolled away, the men have left. So she gets down and she bends down to look inside. It doesn't indicate that she goes inside like Peter did, she's just bending over looking. She's heard the report of the men. She doesn't understand it. So it's natural for her to investigate. But notice when Jesus shows up, her attention is so fixed on the tomb that she's got her backside to him. And when she turns around, she doesn't recognize him. There is no better portrait of the natural human condition in all of the Bible than Mary at this tomb. Not only is she weeping for herself, she's investigating by herself, on her own behalf, and she's looking in to to the problem area, and she's got her backside to God. When God shows up, she doesn't even recognize him. We're so possessed with taking things into our own hands. We're so possessed with trying to figure things out for ourselves that we've got our backs to God. How many times has Jesus shown up in your life and you didn't recognize him? You didn't see him because you were totally fixed on your own problem, your own pain. I can tell you in my life it's been many times. And those are only the times I know about. Then third, notice not only your pain and posture. Notice the pronouncement. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Arabic, "Raboni," which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have, yet to, I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Now, Jesus calls her by name. And he says to her, don't hold on to me. Don't hold me. And you think to yourself, isn't that contradictory to what he says to Thomas? Hours later, he will say to Thomas, here, put your fingers in the nail prints. Put your hand into my side. But here, Jesus says to Mary, don't don't hold on to me. But you see, it's not contradictory at all. In Thomas's case, his issue is unbelief. He has said, unless I put my hands into his side, I will not believe. So what does Jesus do in his grace? He bends himself to Thomas's desire to believe. And he accommodates him. In order for Thomas to believe, Jesus is willing to be handled. But you see, Mary has a different problem. Mary's problem is Mary. Mary's problem is her own sea of bitterness. And notice what Jesus does first. He names her. Now, I would argue that he actually renames her. You say, how is that possible? She was Mary, she's going to be Mary. Well, while the inherent definition of the name Mary is sea of bitterness, the spiritual... Connotation of the name is blessed. What Jesus says when he says her name is, while you are bitter, I'm going to make you blessed. She calls him teacher, and so he's ready to teach her something. For years, the principal question in the church is, are you saved? Have you come to the place in your life where you're willing to settle score with the Lord? You're willing to lay down your own desires and and take up His desires? Are you willing to understand two principal facts, that you are a sinner separated from a holy God, and only through the cross, only through His meritorious work, can we have standing with God? Now, that's the principal question for years in the church, and it's a good one. But Jesus would ask us a different question. Jesus would ask Christians this question, Why have you been saved? For what purpose did the Father elect you from the foundation of the world? You see, for Mary, her tears blind her to the answer. For Mary, her posture betrays her. But once she sees him, And once he calls her name, and once she recognizes who he is, she wants to hold him. She wants to linger. She wants sweet fellowship with him. And that's all natural. Jesus has a different purpose for her. He says, do not hold me. And when he says it, it's in the imperative tense. It's a command. Do not hold on to me. Why? Why? Because I've come to open your eyes, not just so that you might see, but that you might go and allow the Holy Spirit to enable others to see. You see, Jesus always has a different purpose in mind than we would naturally understand. I can't tell you the number of Christians I've known over my life who will revel in their own standing with God. They know they're saved. They know they have a sweet intimacy with Jesus. But in terms of telling someone else, in terms of establishing an outward gaze, it's not part of their constitution. What Jesus is saying to Mary is, listen, Mary, this is not just about you. It's about them. Now think about it. The first post-resurrection preacher is a former demonized woman (laughs) whose name has been changed from bitterness to blessedness. And his message to her is not new. It's exactly the same message his father spoke to Abram and said, I will bless you in order that you may be a blessing to others. You see, the resurrected Lord gives no place to us for selfishness. Jesus is not into bless-me-club mentality. The Lord Jesus, when you follow him, there's no room for, Lord, here's what I think. Here's what I think we ought to do. Here's where I think we ought to go. Here's what really turns me on. Every revelation of God is for one reason to give it away? How can you understand the magnitude of the resurrection and stay self-centered? How can you possess spiritual sight and then maneuver in blindness? I'll tell you how you can do it. You can do it just like Mary did it. You can cry for yourself. You can turn away from the Lord and try to go it on your own, you can refuse to do what Jesus tells us to do. So how about you? Have you learned those lessons of the resurrection? That it's not really about you, it's about them? Many of them you don't even know. Have you learned the lesson of the resurrection? Have you figured it out to the point where you understand that in all of creation there is only one who is completely trustworthy and his name is the Lord Jesus? You know, that's what impressed me so much about my father on his deathbed. when he said in answer to the question, what are you thinking? I'm thinking about his kingdom and how he might desire to use me to enlarge it. I mean, There's one thing to say that when you're living and when you're strong and you can go where you want to go and do what you want to do, but it's quite another thing to say that on your deathbed a week before you die. I'm thinking about His kingdom, and how He might use me to expand it. Imagine somebody operating on themselves, to prove a point, to engender trust. I don't have to imagine it. What Dr. Cain did in 1921 was amazing. In fact, there are those who don't even believe the story. I'll tell you it's true. Look it up. So that other doctors might trust in local anesthesia. He was willing to cut his own body. But you know something? That doesn't hold a candle to what Jesus did. In order that we might trust him, He laid down his life. He took it up again. And for those of us who know the meaning of the resurrection, there don't have to be any more tears of self-centeredness. There doesn't need to be any staring into empty tombs. There doesn't need to be any holding on to Jesus as if he might escape from our grasp. Jesus says to us, I will never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. I'm not just the Lord who was born of a womb. I'm the Lord who got up from a tomb so that you might go forth into a dead and lost world and share the good news of the gospel with others. It's Easter. Can you think of a better time to think about that? Amen.